Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond Prisons. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Sonnenstein. In this episode, Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law return to discuss their new book, Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. The book provides a comprehensive and thought-provoking critical analysis of popular reforms to policing and incarceration, such as electronic monitoring, diversion courts, so-called sex worker rescue programs, and a lot more. Importantly, it explores not only how these reforms fail to promote safety, but how they actually increase the size and scope of policing and incarceration. Our wide-ranging conversation touches on how electronic monitoring denies people the ability to do the basic things they need to do to live, and shifts the cost of incarceration away from the government and onto the individual and their family, harming those important relationships in a multitude of ways. We talk about the release of this book at a time of heightened skepticism around reform projects and a growing popular awareness of abolition, and we also discuss why community policing is anti-community, and why it's important to remember that we don't need a replacement response for everything for which people are policed and imprisoned. In some cases, it would be better to do nothing instead. Maya Shenoir is the editor-in-chief of Truthout. Before co-authoring this book with Vicky, she wrote Locked Down, Locked Out, and was the co-editor of Who Do You Serve, Who Do You Protect? She lives in Chicago with her partner and toddler. Victoria Law is a freelance journalist who focuses on the intersections of incarceration, gender, and resistance. She is the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and regularly covers prison issues for Truthout and other outlets. We highly recommend you get your hands on a copy of Prison by Any Other Name, and you can find links to buy it in the episode notes, as well as links to Maya and Vicky's websites and social media accounts so you can follow their work. The interview is coming up next, but first, a few words from Kim. We'd like to dedicate this episode to Keely Shenoir, Maya's sister who passed away earlier this year. I'd also like to read a poem that Keely wrote that she shared with me in one of her letters and that uh, Maya shared on Facebook. Blind to the consequences, deaf to her warning, fighting my sleep, tired of waking up each morning. I can feel the hunger, can't stomach the pain, consequences for putting poison in my veins. Each new shift I dread, but this is where my decisions have led. Nightfall and each new day, this jail is where I lay. I agree I deserve the time I'm put away. It's my family that doesn't deserve to hurt this way. I was back in their lives. They thought I'd stay. Nothing was supposed to be this way. It happened so fast, all in one day, ruining each next. Guess I failed that test. Family thinking they'd have to lay me to rest. I was selfish. I'd stay gone to avoid the stress, surrounded by chaos and hidden under my mess. Outside these gates, away from these bars, and in front of me, soon I'll have another chance to fix it all. I'm ready for what comes next. I've learned from the rest. 
Such a fragile existence seems destined to fail, but I don't want to know my daughter only through the mail. I didn't know Keely well. Uh, only connected through Maya and uh, had only exchanged one letter and I'd sent her some of my paintings. Um, I've gotten to know Keely over the last couple of years now uh, through Maya's writings and uh, everything that she shared uh, on, on social media about her sister. Um, Keely was a wonderful, vibrant person who loved life, loved her daughter, uh, helped everyone that she could, um, and really fucking hated this entire system. And it was the system that took her. I want us all to think about Kiwi, not just today, um, but in our work. And I know I, think about her often and uh, and I want to hold her close. I also think about Maya and her family and just want them to know that we love them and uh, and we're here. Thank you both again for coming back on the show and more importantly congratulations on this really amazing and fantastic book that you've put together here. Um, I really enjoyed reading it and I really feel like the timing of it could not possibly be any better. Um, I don't know the extent to which you feel like you could have or did plan for that, but it's just incredible to have this work to think about and engage with and, and discuss at a time like this. And especially in a moment where I feel like it seems to me that more people now than ever are sort of engaging in critiques of popular reforms um, and sort of having a little bit more of a public critical analysis of what a lot of these things that we've heard of, you know, like drug courts and community policing and all of this, what they actually mean, uh, what their material function is and what the consequences are of them. Um, and so, you know, I guess to start off, I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, the timing of this book and, and sort of what that means to you and what you hope people take from it. Um, and then if I could just kind of like append like a second question onto that, you know, I think one of the things that I really thought was interesting about the book, especially again in this present moment, is sort of the issue of co-optation of movement demands or rhetoric, even on just like a superficial level, you know, like calls for services or for treatment that communities need and the way that that kind of gets, um, you know, like shoehorned into harmful conduct or, or used to uh, sort of um, detail harmful conduct by the system. So I guess just to start off, I wanted you to talk about the context of the, in which the book is being released and your thoughts on that. And this issue of co-optation historically in movements and whether you think uh, there's anything that we could do to preempt it from looking at how this, you know, takes form over time. Um, is this something that we can deal with or something that you've seen others deal with? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a big first question to start off with. 
So the timing of the book, well, first off, Brian and Kim, thanks so much for having us on. We're both delighted to be back on the show. Uh, and the timing was just surely fortuitous. Like we, we did not expect when we first pitched this book ages ago when Obama was still president that we were going right. to have this book come out in yeah. this moment in which people were not only critically looking at the ways in which the police and prison systems perpetuate more violence and don't create safety for individuals, families, and communities, but that there would be radical calls not for body cameras, diversity hiring, better training, uh, nicer, kinder, gentler ways of policing and imprisonment, but that we would be having this moment in which people were calling for defunding the police, abolishing the police, asking about abolition, talking seriously about what keeps us safe and what doesn't keep us safe. So we're not, so we did not think for five years ago that we were going to be coming, we would have this book come out in this moment in which people are, again, critically examining this flawed concept of police and prisons keep us safe, but also challenging this idea that you can just tweak the system with a reform here, a tinker there, a change there, uh, more black and brown faces on this end, mm -hmm. uh, you know, something, you know, something else, de-escalation training on that end. Uh, but instead, people are saying this whole system is rooted in white supremacy, in xenophobia and homophobia, it, uh, in misogyny, and it cannot be reformed. So for us, this is really exciting. And I think that one of the things, uh, one of the issues that we have been challenging in our work individually and now in our book is this idea that you can't reform a system that is basically rotten at the core. Angela Davis uh, asks in a recent webinar, does it make sense to call for more reforms to these failed institutions that began as reforms? So we see prisons having been a reform to brutal, physical punishment and uh, banishment and execution for acts that were considered crime. Mm -hmm. So it would be acts of harm or acts that just violated the social norms, like not going to church, possibly practicing witchcraft, or, you know, people thought you practiced witchcraft or adultery or things that now we don't really consider crimes anymore. Um, and prisons began as a reform to that, but then we have this idea that if we just keep tinkering with it, we can reform the reforms. And we are now in a, a time period in which people are saying, no, you cannot reform these failed reforms. We just need to throw the whole thing away and figure out what really keeps us and our community safe, what meets people's needs, and what people allows people to survive and thrive in this world. Thank you. Appreciate that. Maya, did you want to try to tackle my bizarre second question? Um, I could restate yeah, it for you sure. if you want. <laughs> it's about co-optation and 
Yeah, yeah like maybe, just maybe restate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like sort of a theme that I, I gathered from reading the book is that, um, you know, just like, like Vicky was saying, you know, the reforms come from other reforms, right? It's kind of like a, a call and response or a dialectic of reform. And um, it, you can sort of gauge that some of these things uh, sort of co-opt very superficially like the demands that communities make. So for instance, for services or for healthcare or for things like that. And what that actually ends up looking like when the system takes it and says, oh, okay, here's healthcare is something mm-hmm. like, you know, like mandatory treatment or, or c- civil commitment or things like that. And I just wondered that issue of co-optation, you know, if you had anything that comes to mind when you were working on the book, if that's something that even in this particular moment that we're in, uh, and we're seeing sort of like reform platforms come out that like kind of begin to co-opt some of the abolitionist rhetoric, some of the more radical rhetoric that has changed from maybe some of the reform rhetoric that we've seen in the past, you know, is there anything that we can do about that? Are there any lessons we can take from history on co-optation or just in general, like what are your thoughts about the way that these concepts and these ideas and these demands are taken by the state and then perverted into something else? Yeah, absolutely. We're in a really, really bizarre moment because even at the Republican National Convention, we saw speakers feeling like they needed to gesture toward ideas of racial justice and build Trump uh, up to be this person who had enacted major reforms to the prison system, which of course is not true, and all of this. And of course, the same thing was done at the Democratic Convention in similarly false ways, not quite as false, but still still very false. I, I had to laugh when one speaker said that Trump had ended the policy of incarcerating Black people. Um, there are just like these statements of President Trump being someone who was in favor of racial justice, like actually using that term. Melania Trump saying that he was confronting the opioid crisis and and making major changes on that front when actually overdoses have increased last year and already this year have skyrocketed. And so these bizarre things, but they're feeling they need to gesture toward that because of what's going on in the country and because it has become unacceptable to not gesture toward it. So of course, this is a very exciting moment and also one that's ripe for co-optation and also just like enacting reform policies that are then going to make it harder to Mm -hmm. dismantle in the future, if that makes sense. Like the, the thing we always warn about in abolition is building up institutions that you're going to have to tear down later. So we see Biden actually advocating for community policing, saying he doesn't want to defund police. He actually wants to pour more money into these policies that we are pushing back against in our book. We see 
widespread calls for social workers to replace police, basically. So not definitely we see calls coming from abolitionists to fundamentally transform the system, dismantle the system of policing. But then we're also seeing people who are saying, well, defund the police doesn't mean get rid of the police. And instead, we need to think about which emergency responses we could just deploy social workers for in the same way that we deploy police. And that's something that we really need to challenge because as we talk about in our book, policing doesn't always happen in the form of someone with a badge and a gun. Policing happens in all kinds of ways. It happens through the so-called child welfare system where social workers and other people who are in helping professions are drafted into a system where they investigate parents and caregivers and inflict some of the most horrifying punishments and harm by tearing families apart. We see teachers drafted into this system, not only through the system of school policing and having SROs police in schools, but also through punitive forms of education or instruction. One person we interviewed for our book was Crystal Laura, who wrote the book Being Bad, and she talks about the ways that schools, particularly schools in communities of color, Black communities, Indigenous communities, very often schools are structured in ways that don't replicate prisons, but, but in certain ways mirror prisons. Things like forcing students to stay in a room for long periods of time without going to the bathroom, you know, metal detectors, wearing uniforms, requiring ID at all times, like enforcing certain rules that then lead to suspension and expulsion and the school to prison pipeline. So those, of course, teachers are drafted into those policies. It's not just police appearing in the classroom, it's teachers being enlisted to call them. And so when we hear all these alternatives, oh, we have to replace police, with social workers, with medical professionals, you know, we have to have teachers enforcing rules in schools instead of SROs or, you know, bringing in private police instead of as we reduce funding for public police, you know, so we see all these things that can happen in terms of replacement, in terms of substitution, instead of dismantling the system and growing new and life-affirming and nurturing options in their place. And that's something that is a really an overarching theme of our book is challenging a logic of replacement, mm -hmm. saying that this is not about finding a kinder, gentler alternative. So it's not about, oh, instead of prison, we have electronic monitoring where we just lock you in your home, basically. It's not about putting you in a lockdown drug treatment center instead of putting you in a prison. It's not about locking you up indefinitely in a psychiatric institution or extending your incarceration in a civil commitment center just because it's not called a prison. We have to actually challenge what actions are happening, 
challenge what policies are being put in place and how they're actually impacting human beings instead of just what they're called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and uh, I want to pick up on a few of the things that, that you said, um, that you both said in, in your responses uh, to, to Brian's questions. Um, and, uh, you know, just really think about the way, you know, that the book um, challenges the conventional wisdom on incarceration, right? And you're really asking readers to consider the ways, you know, the many ways uh, that the criminal legal system or criminal punishment system uh, through the use of surveillance technology um, and specifically electronic monitoring has expanded its reach into our, you know, communities, into our homes, onto our very bodies, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you're urging us to consider, you know, uh, this thing that we're calling, you know, you're calling the prison nation as a whole and to see the ways that these varying structures that you mentioned, um, that you both mentioned, you know, the child welfare system, uh, sex offender registries, diversion programs, rehabilitation programs, um, and so forth, really contribute to the expansion of the carceral state, right? And, you know, in, in terms of thinking about um, electronic monitoring um, and how it denies people right? Uh, their ability to just do really basic things that all human adults need to be able to do in order to just live, right? <laughs> um, you know, things like uh, going to the store, going to the laundromat, taking care of children, you know, or taking ch- children shopping or to school, attending family gatherings, as you uh, discussed in the book. You know, I'm wondering if you could just talk about how electronic monitoring um, really does, you know, um, destroy people's uh, social connections, right? And how this really cruel um, reform effort uh, adds an additional layer of punishment on top of something that's already really restrictive, right? Uh, On top of all the other things uh, that are having, you know, that people are having to to do and the hoops that folks have to jump through. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, One of the things we need to remember with electronic monitoring, first of all, is that with the exceptions of very rich, powerful, and well-publicized cases like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, usually electronic monitoring is not used for people who are accused of or convicted of harming other people. So when we think about electronic monitoring, we need to think of this as a way in which we widen the net, the carceral net for people who might otherwise not be under state supervision and coercive control to begin with. So it is not for people who are thinking about electronic monitoring. It is not people who are quote unquote hardened criminals or threats to uh, the safety of the community or society who are typically placed on electronic monitoring. It is people who uh, have, are accused of or are convicted of what are considered low-level, often nonviolent offenses, uh, who are not deemed to be dangerous to the community. But because we have this new type of technology, we can put them under some sort of coercive control instead of uh, spending the time and money and taking up prison beds, locking them up. So uh, I want to give your listeners that 
of caveats first before we start mm -hmm. talking about the actual harms that electronic monitoring does when people are placed on it to their relationships um, and their ability to just be in the community and in the world. And I mean, most people, uh, most people, if they were asked, would say, would if given the option of, would you rather be at home with this giant GPS device shackled to your ankle, but at least you could get up when you feel like getting up, go to your refrigerator when you feel like going to the refrigerator. Uh, you don't have to sit up five times a night and re recite your state ID number. Most people would say, yes, you know, I would rather do that um, and be able to be around your loved ones uh, than be in an overcrowded jail or prison cell or dorm. Uh, one of the first people we interviewed in our book is a woman named Colette Payne, who uh, was in Chicago's Cook County Jail, which is a notoriously overcrowded, uh, you know, infested, and now COVID-infested jail, uh, one of the largest jail systems in the country. And after a week there of, you know, enduring an overcrowded dorm, uh, the loudness, the chaos, being fed breakfast at 3.30 in the morning, not being fed after a certain time in the afternoon, and being separated from her children and her family, she would she was offered the choice of electronic monitoring, which would allow her to be uh, at home with her, with her children, with her family, again, not be subjected to the conditions in the jail. So she chose that option. And what ended up happening was that being on electronic monitoring actually prevented her from a being fully engaged with her family and community. She couldn't take her children to the store. She couldn't attend family gatherings like family barbecues or if somebody had a birthday party, uh, she couldn't leave her house. Um, she was arrested for uh, her addiction, um, for something related to her addiction. And being on electronic monitoring, for listeners who don't know, means that you have to ask permission for every time you want to leave your house. And you have to ask permission up to a week in advance. And it is up to the jail officer or the electronic monitoring company to say, yes, we give you permission to go to the store between three and four o'clock on Tuesday, but you can only go to the store that you listed. And if that store doesn't have the items that you need, you cannot go to the next door down the block because that is not on your approved movement list. So right there, we see the ways in which it whittles away at your freedom. And she asked her, uh, the officer in charge of surveilling her, if she could go seek drug treatment. And she was told no. So she, so electronic monitoring actually prevented her from addressing uh, the root causes of what caused her to be tangled up in the legal system in the first place. And then it also prevented her from continuing to form relationships with her family. And one of the things that we know is that strong relationships are one of the most significant motivators to curb drug misuse. But being on electronic monitoring and not being able to go to grandma's birthday party, a cousin's barbecue, a child's baseball game, or even just to do normal things like taking your kids to school, taking them to the store, taking them to the playground, meant that she was effectively isolated from the goings-on in her family and community. And she was stuck in her house with her thoughts, with her desire to use drugs, 
and unable to do any of the things that would have helped address and motivate her to um, address her drug addiction. And eventually she relapsed and she was arrested and she was sent back to prison. And I give you this example to show that electronic monitoring just prolongs this process of her incarceration. So rather than her being in jail uh, and then serving her time, it's like she was in jail and she was out and she was in this kinder, gentler, supposedly more humane alternative that did not address any of the root causes of what she needed. And then eventually she was sent back uh, behind bars, just separated from her family, back in the crowded dorm, back to the chaos, back to nothing again that addressed what she needed to survive and thrive in society. And we see this again and again and again uh, with electronic monitoring, which is posed as kinder, gentler, more humane, but in effect just widens the net and does not do anything to address people's needs. Yeah. 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 That was, um, you know, when I read that, I was just, you know, shaking my head. I mean, I, I know people that, that are um, on EM and have been, and it's just always a, a disaster, but I want to pick up on the point that you just made about this really, um, you know, electronic monitoring uh, prolonging the process, because I think that that's something that uh, a lot of people are not necessarily aware of. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that, but also uh, perhaps also discuss uh, the way that uh, electronic monitoring uh, has shifted the costs uh, for incarceration? It's not like we don't already pay for people to, you know, families don't already pay for people to be incarcerated, uh, but electronic monitoring functions in a, in a different way. Yeah, so a couple of things about the way in which electronic monitoring and also other so-called alternatives prolong people's time. So one of them is that most of these alternatives that we talk about in our book are also active drivers of incarceration, meaning imprisonment in mm -hmm. actual prisons and jails. So probation, for example, we cite a report from the Harvard Kennedy School that talks about probation as one of the most significant drivers of incarceration, as well as being the largest so-called prison alternative with actually many more people on probation that are in than are in prison. Over 3.5 million people are on probation. And 15% of people in prisons have been on probation. So we, we have to look at this as a cycle. We can't just say, oh, you know, people have been given this kinder and gentler alternative instead of incarceration. Very often they're coming right back. And I think that we need to look at some of the conditions that are placed on people when they are under the eye of these systems and recognize that they're not conditions that are compatible with living your your life. So I think that there's been a lot of conflating over the past few months of electronic monitoring or house arrest with shelter in place. Mm -hmm. And that's very misleading, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, people who are under electronic monitoring, which in many cases is equivalent to home confinement or so-called house arrest, people 
are faced with an inability to do some of the things that actually make our lives bearable under shelter in place. So most people who are incarcerated have minor children and we can infer even though there isn't data that that's also true of most people on electronic monitoring. I know as a person with a two-year-old, one of the only things that has made it possible for me to do this is to be able to go for little walks, you know, go around the block, go to an empty park or a forest preserve or something like that. You know, we don't have a backyard. And that's something that you just can't do. Like the people that we interviewed who are on electronic monitoring, also when my sister was on electronic monitoring, that was one of the most aggravating things was just not being able to go outside, get air, you know, unless you're standing right outside your door. Um, one of the women that we interviewed had five children and she just couldn't take her kids to the park. And since she was on EM over the course of years, she was raising kids who could not remember going to the park with their mother. And we also see things like people not being able to go to the emergency room because they're afraid of being reincarcerated. So this is a potentially deadly system. And so of course, of course, most of us would be violating those conditions left and right. On probation, usually the number of restrictions that are put on a person number in the teens, they can, there can be more than 20 restrictions actually for people. And these are not just things that are considered crimes. These are things like drinking alcohol, even if you're an adult, associating with certain people or going certain places, abiding by a curfew. It, there have even been cases of conditions being imposed, like not getting pregnant or not sitting in the front seat of a car. So think also about the fact that people are on probation over the course of years. People are on EM over the course of years. Very often they're sentenced to longer sentences than they would be behind bars. And one of the people we interviewed who was on EM said, and also put on probation, said that her probation officer told her she had a better chance of winning the lottery than of finishing her probation sentence because she was on probation for several years. And he was just like, yeah, you're not going to do that. And what that would have meant was being sent back to prison. And actually, she did finish her sentence. She won the lottery, but she talked about how certain things made that possible for her that most people don't have. So, so yes, it's it's absolutely a, a driver of incarceration. And I, I think one other thing about that is that when people look at this as an entirely different system, they they miss the fact that this is because it's just a sub substitution at the end. It's not actually disrupting arrest or criminalization or any of the things that are kind of fundamental, it's still built on the same foundations. It's still a form of a cage. It's still built on white supremacy, anti-Blackness. It still manifests in the same ways in terms of those things. So where I live in Cook County, 
70% of the people who are on EM are Black. Black people are, I think, 24% of the population in this county. So this isn't, this isn't some kind of regenerated or transformative solution that has just like built an entirely different system. It's just substituting a different form of a cage. And when you mentioned the cost, I think that this is something that makes this so-called alternative appealing to conservatives is that it's marketed as a cost-saving strategy. So not only are costs being saved because people are not physically behind bars, so technically people who are incarcerated have a right to things like food and healthcare. Of course, we know that those are not actually um, adequate food, adequate healthcare, but you know, those things are being paid for. Guards are paid, the actual buildings are being maintained, that costs money. So all of these costs. So it's saying, okay, well, if people are on the outside, then they are not needing to pay those those costs, but also people are charged for the privilege of being confined on electronic monitoring. And those costs can be really high. And I, I think that we also have to keep in mind that people who are on EM, who are on probation are disproportionately low income and they're being charged daily user fees. And these can be anything from $3 per day to even $40 per day. And so this is what we're looking at as some sort of humane alternative to prison. And we know that in a lot of cases when people are not able to pay those costs, they're either reincarcerated or they're just indefinitely on electronic monitoring, which was true of one of the people that we interviewed for our book. At the time that we interviewed her, she said, I don't know how long I'm going to be monitored because I'm behind on paying these fees. And her probation officer said, yeah, you're just gonna keep being on EM until you pay off your fees. So it's a nightmare. Yeah, I I really appreciate that. I mean, I what I really love about this book is that even, you know, like for me, I'm familiar with a lot of the the subject matter in the book, but you both go to such lengths and sort of tease out all these different perverse dimensions of of some of these issues, things that I hadn't thought about yet. Um, and so I just I encourage people who even you know, are familiar with the critiques, a lot of these things to still pick up your book and, and really engage with it. Because, you know, a lot of the things that you're pointing out, I think, again, are just sort of dimensions of these issues that don't get talked about a lot. I think there was like one anecdote, and I hope I don't botch it. I think it was in the section about um, the so-called child welfare system, where somebody, uh, you know, had their child go stay with their sister because of uh, a domestic violence situation. Um, and, you know, they're not getting any support for parenting costs from the state. Um, but meanwhile, the sister who the child went to go live with is getting paid by the state uh, for the fostering costs or for the, the child care mm -hmm. costs. Um, and it's just so, I mean, it's just mind bending <laughs> to me, the, the whole way that that is set up. Um, yeah. So, 
yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, the lengths that you guys have gone to tease out all the different aspects of these. Um, I had, I wanted to shift gears a little bit um, and, you know, still sort of talk about, again, one of these dimensions on a subject that I know very well, but I hadn't ever really thought about before. Um, I was really grateful for the section on community policing in this book and in the context of reforms, because I feel like community policing is one of those things where um, I feel like this round, we're hearing a lot about it. And, you know, it was something that was raised during the Obama administration and so on and so forth. But I don't feel like like a lot of critiques have really broken through on community policing in the way that they have for some of these other reforms. Like, I just don't think they have, have as much public awareness, maybe, as a lot of some of these other things. Um, and, you know, for me, I when I think of community policing, the first thing that comes to mind is sort of this, like, intense community occupation where you have just sort of constant street-level harassment um, by cops in these neighborhoods. But I really appreciated the part where it talks about how community policing is also about defining who is part of a community and who is not part of a community, even among people who literally live in what you're calling the community, the geographical boundaries of that town or that block or that neighborhood. Um, yeah. And I was also interested in, in the way that you discuss community policing as sort of uh, another means to deputize nonprofits and, and members of the public as police, predominantly white property owners and white homeowners. So mm-hmm. I guess I was wondering if you could just tell folks a little bit about this, because I just thought this was so interesting, this idea that community policing is not just about sort of this entrenchment of cops in a neighborhood, but the definition of who is part of a community and who is not, um, if, if, you, if you care to share about that. Sure. Uh, So when we talk about community policing, there are two facets to it. And this idea of community policing is actually not new. It has been around since the 1980s uh, in various forms where you have neighborhood policing, community policing. There's the idea that the same police patrol the same areas in a neighborhood. So they're supposed to get to know residents. uh, People are supposed to feel more comfortable talking to them. And what ends up happening, and it's a very, it's the idealized version of what I guess what you would see on like a 1950s TV show where Officer Friendly walks down the block of some suburban uh, cul-de-sac and, you know, says hello to all the moms that are like weeding their gardens or, you know, watering their plants or whatever. (laughs) You know, says hi to Jimmy and Johnny who are, you know, uh, riding their bikes up and down the street. Uh, And so it's this idealized version of, the police engaging with the community and getting to know people in the community that does not play out in reality. In reality, what we're seeing is this idea of community policing in which police go to the same neighborhoods and the same streets and the same places, and they get to know perhaps some of the business owners who are more conducive to talking to the police. They also, you know, get to see who else is in the area, but whether they consider them a part of the community or undesirable, you know, means that uh, depends on whether or not this, per- you know, the person's race, this person's class, uh, this person's, you know, uh, standing in the community. Are they uh, somebody who is sleeping on the streets because, and that is the corner that they've always slept on because there's an awning and it keeps them dry when it's 
uh, rainy out. There's a great blows up warm air in the winter. Um, maybe it's close to the parks where there's a public bathroom, you know, but they're not considered part of the community or is it of. Uh, and so what we see with this idea of community policing is police go to the same areas and what plays out in reality, particularly for black, brown and marginalized folks, is that they just get harassed again and again by the same cops over and over and over again. It's not that Officer Friendly develops a relationship with the three kids that are always just hanging out on a park bench because there's not anything else for them to do in under-resourced uh, neighborhood that doesn't have community centers or thriving programs, after-school programs for kids. So they don't have money. They're, they're not old enough to go to establishments where you would pay a lot of money to go sit there and drink alcohol or overpriced coffee or whatever. So you sit on a park bench or you sit on your stoop. And what happens is you have the same police over and over just telling you to get off your stoop, get off that park bench, move it along. Um, and there's this idea that police somehow will develop a relationship with people that is friendly and cordial instead of saying, well, it's just, it's, there's nothing in there that says you must treat everybody respectfully. Uh, you must engage with people as part of the community and at the same time, we see community, this idea of community policing also uh, making it so that certain people who want safer streets, law and order, buying into this idea that policing is the answer. So you see people forming neighborhood watches, I mean, uh, with this idea that outsiders need to be kept out or people who are seen as outside of the community, that one of the most stark examples is George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin was going to his dad's house. His dad lived in the area that George Zimmerman, who was part of a neighborhood watch, was patrolling. So by definition, Trayvon Martin was part of the community. His father lived in that community. Uh, but all George Zimmerman saw was a young black man and immediately assumed, you don't belong in this neighborhood and followed him and even though he was repeatedly told not to engage with the young boy did and shot and killed him so there's this idea that there are that you deputize certain members of the community to act as extensions of the police force and they're supposed to keep outsiders out of the neighborhood uh and the threat is always seen as people who are somehow outside the neighborhood and they're going to come in and cause mayhem or cause crime or cause chaos rather than saying what can we as a community do to keep each other safe i mean it should also be noted that george zimmerman had a history of domestic violence as well so this probably appealed to him to be the like law and order guy that goes and you know, attacks a, a young a young child coming back from the store to his father's house so we have this idea that you know Policing and community community policing will somehow solve the ills of police violence because people get police get to know uh, the people that they're policing. They see them as people. They get to know their issues. And in reality, it just doesn't play out this way. I mean, uh, if you think about it, George Floyd was killed by a man that he worked in the same nightclub as. So you know they knew each other, and it did not prevent this officer from spending, you know, from first beating him up in the mm -hmm. back of a squad car and then killing him. 
So this idea that just because you know each other means that the possibilities of violence decreases doesn't play out in reality. But it's a Band-Aid idea, again, throwing back to this idealized version that we're fed from like all these, you know, TV shows that if the police get to know you and you get to know the police, you can foment this great relationship that keeps everybody safe as opposed to we've just been fed another way to increase police budgets and justify having police in the neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. And I think like one thing, I I think all of that's just so important and it, it really is an expansion. Like we talk about widening the net through our, our book. Community policing is an expansion that's almost indefinite because it's deputizing people in the community who are, you know, civilians to do the work of policing. And they always use the term, be the eyes and ears of the police. And like you were saying, Brian and Vicki, it means seeking out older people, people with money, property owners, and then white people in a, mis- in a mixed race neighborhood. And just saying, call the cops, call the cops, call the cops, and building that in. So they become de facto police, you know, spying on their neighbors and defining the community by virtue of calling the police on certain people. So Jasmine Trujillo, who we interviewed, said gang members are defined as outside the community, no matter what community it is, by the police. And even though gang members are often very integral members of the community who are doing the work of community building and the holding events and stuff like that, that isn't happening in neighborhoods that have been abandoned, you know, by the government. And so those are, those are things to think about. And also, I just wanted to add that when we talk about this idea of enlisting volunteer civilians, we have to remember that like a lot of other reforms, it's not some sort of new, like, you know, shiny idea. It actually goes way, way back to the founding of policing in this country. So lately there's been actually a lot more awareness that slave patrols were one of the original forms of policing in this country. And a lot of those people were volunteers who went out and captured enslaved Black people who were perceived as fleeing. And up north, there were formalized night watches. Those were some of the origins of policing who were going around looking for people involved in sex work and other behaviors that were seen as somehow deviant. And the Texas Rangers who murdered indigenous people and Mexican-Americans as part of an ongoing volunteer vigilante effort. They were volunteers, you know. And so I think that the idea that a volunteer, like someone who's getting active as part of a neighborhood watch or a night watch in a community, the idea that that's fundamentally a good thing really, really needs to be challenged. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I, I, 
wanted to just echo, you know, one part, I think both of you brought up, but Vicky, you were mentioning the whole trust aspect that is baked into community policing. And I just find, I've always been, I've always thought that was just so weird, the, the whole concept of trust in, in that dynamic, because it's never about yeah. the police conduct, right? It's, it's, it's more about like, oh, we'll just put you in more proximity to the police and you just have to figure it out and learn to trust them. Like it's always put on the communities that are impacted by policing to come around and trust police rather than having anything to do with the actual conduct at hand. So um, yeah, I, I just wanted to echo that. I, I thought that was mm -hmm. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I want to underscore that, but also, you know, uh, one of the observations that, that I've made is just, you know, driving around, um, you know, near my, near my neighborhood, it's not in my neighborhood, but, um, in areas surrounding it are, uh, the ways that business owners um, have, you know, received signs from the various police departments. And these are really kind of mm -hmm. like small um, county level, you know, uh, police departments, right? So it's not big, huge city. Like I'm in, I'm in Philly. So this is right outside of Philadelphia. Um, and I've seen these signs where, you know, in, you could drive down an entire street and you see signs in, various businesses that say we support the police. Right. And, you know, it, it's just, and I'm like, what is like, what is happening here? Right. Like what is happening? Right. But we yeah. see that, um, the connection between, you know, uh, businesses and the police working, you know, hand in hand. And we've seen all of the critiques um, about this, uh, particularly around, you know, the protests. I know here in Philly, just a few months ago when we had, um, you know, massive protests and, you know, televised all over, um, there were business owners who were sitting outside, you know, um, it, watching and making sure that their businesses were not, you know, destroyed or looted, uh, quote unquote, looted. Um, so that connection, I find, you know, really disturbing, <laughs> problematic, and something that we need to challenge or do a better, um, you know, better job at challenging, because I think that, you know, too often people see business owners as, okay, this is necessary to the community, and they don't see them as being, you know, uh, as working in concert with the police oftentimes. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, we need we need our small business owners, and this is a Black-owned business. We need to support Black-owned and, you know, Brown-owned businesses. But these are also people who are working together with the police to increase surveillance and policing in all of these communities. And when it comes down to it, they would, you know, much prefer to preserve their business than to take care of the community. Right. If we mean care and outside of the ways that um, the carceral state imagines care, um, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to yeah. say something about that, but that's that's what you made me think of when you know when you were uh, talk both talking about this. Well, I think one of the things that we that happens when we have this narrative that only policing and prisons or the threat of prisons can keep us safe is that it shrinks our imagination, so that people who own businesses or run businesses are like, well, I don't want my business to be looted. I don't want my myself or my employees to get attacked or beat up. Uh, I don't want people like, you know, setting my business on fire. Uh, and the narrative we have been fed 
over and over and over from the time we are really small um, until, you know, we are whatever age we are is you either call the police or you do nothing, right? Or maybe, like, you, you be a vigilante like Batman, you know, but you, you don't have this idea that, like, you know, being part of the community is also a form of safety and is a better form of safety than, you know, just relying on the police to come and possibly save your business, but possibly not. Um, so we have this idea that, you know, so we all have this idea that we have to fight against because living in the United States, you are told again and again and again, police or nothing, prisons or nothing. You know, you can either call the police or you can take your chances that your business might get looted or burnt to the ground uh, or something else. So we have this shrinking of the imagination in which people aren't thinking about alternatives. And so it's not necessarily that all businesses are like, you know, screw the community. I just want my business to be safe. But we are taught that everybody else is some potential threat, especially <laughs> you know, with the media images that came out during all of the protests that came out uh, against police violence after George Floyd, is that, you know, there was a very select bunch of images where it's like, oh, looting is happening. Uh, Stores are being looted. Uh, Let's go interview these kids who are carrying sneakers down the street. And watching some of these news clips, uh, they would be like, why are you carrying this? You know, why, why, why did you just, you know, take all these sneakers out of the store? And the kid would say, oh, you know, uh, something, 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 you know. And then they would start to say, but, you know, the real thing is that our communities are, and the newscaster would cut off and go back mm-hmm. to the studio. So any analysis that that kid had, you know, about, uh systemic racism, lack of opportunities in the neighborhood, the fact that maybe the store owner consistently like threw black people out of the store, called the cops on them, or, you know, like, uh, you know, about police violence, about, you know, like all of these things was just cut, right? Like all they wanted was the soundbite of, you know, I always wanted to have this pair of Jordans, but you know what else? In this community, like none of these businesses hire black people, but that part would be cut. You know, like, and it's like, and back to you at the studio, Sue. And Sue would then go on to, like, show you a clip of the weather or, you know, a beach or whatever else, you know. So so we, so we, there's this ingrained idea that people are threats to your livelihood and to your business. Uh, and the only way to deal with them is by embracing expanded policing, embracing, you know, uh, a larger in a larger carceral state rather than saying like mm-hmm. how do we do this i mean we didn't see as much uh, attention paid in minneapolis where the people who owned a restaurant right next to the police precinct that burned down said you know what we will rebuild mm-hmm. this was our this was our life savings our life streams our life work but you know what we are still alive unlike george floyd who is not alive yeah. but we don't see those narratives being given attention as much on like the 6 p.m. primetime news, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, where people are saying, you know what, even if we may not necessarily have been part of the everyday community, we understand that we can rebuild. We'll figure something out. You know, this man does not get to rebuild his life. He is dead and he's going to stay dead. And this is more important to us than, than, you know, than, uh, uh, than our business, because again, mm-hmm. we understand what the stakes are. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I certainly had that uh, example in the the back of my mind as well. So I'm glad you've raised that. But I also, you know, um, uh, we drove around, my partner and I went out the day after, you know, the big like televised protests where the police came out and, you know, uh, basically corralled everybody um, into, you know, several several blocks up on Market Street. And, you know, on the news, um, let the news tell it, the images were like the entire area was burnt down. And, you know, how will this area ever rebuild and all of that stuff? And <laughs> I, I, I said this on Twitter, you know, um, we we drove up and down the, you know, the streets where that were televised, you know, the day before looking for the destruction, right? And I said, you know what, this is nonsense. I said, the story is that there was very little to no destruction, that most of the storefronts that were, you know, um, smashed were vacant. um, And the one or two that we saw that, you know, were boarded up had either preemptively boarded up, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, were just like, when I say less than a handful of businesses were actually, you know, destroyed, right? And not destroyed in totality either, right? There was a lot of hoopla around the McDonald's up on, you know, um, I think it's uh, Chestnut Street or what have you. But anyway, the McDonald's is open. Um, There was a lot of hand wringing about, you know, all of this stuff. But what we did see were a lot of cops on the street, right? And business owners, you know, out there sweeping the streets with the police. And those were the stories that were being told in the local Mm -hmm. paper. Right. Mm-hmm. Where the, the police presence on the street. And I was just like, you know what? Isn't this some shit? I'm like, nothing was destroyed. There wasn't a single house. People were just out the next day walking around. Kids were playing, riding their bikes, doing all the things that they were doing. And I'm like that. Absolutely not. Not a peep. Right. Not a peep. It's like it never happened. So the way that, you know, and I, I'm glad you pointed out that the way that the media presents the story or presents these images is really skewed to make it appear to demonize a certain group of people um, and to present the police as, you know, coming in and really rescuing, um, you know, mm-hmm. the neighborhood and what have you. Um I want to switch gears a little bit uh, here because there's something, you know, that uh, that you mentioned in the book. And there's so many things that you obviously talk about in the book. um, And I wish we could talk about all of them. Um, But uh, you talk about sex workers. Right. And the ways that certain programs are uh, developed to rescue, quote unquote, rescue sex workers. And uh, you mentioned Project Rose in particular. Right. And we know, you know, from or at least I know from reading the book, that that program is no longer um, in operation. But I'd like for you to describe, you know, what Project Rose uh, was um, and, you know, what what came out of that, right? Because I think the implications of, you know, those kinds of projects really... um, you know, it, that's that's where that's what's happening now, right? So that project is is no longer around. But also, you know, really um, think about the intersection between you know police, faith based nonprofit organizations, and universities, right? Because I think that that relationship um, needs a little bit more attention. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I think that that's 
that's a really good way to put it, that this is not just about the police or the carceral system as we imagine it, taking on these alternatives. It's about enlisting and bringing in nonprofits, organizations that people might see as, as charitable or as reputable, like completely outside police departments and enlisting them to do policing work and to validate policing work. And so definitely in the case of Project Rose and remaining sex worker so-called rescue programs, that's what's going on. They're positioned as programs that literally rescue, save people, right? They're supposed to be, you know, if you look at the rhetoric, it, they're portrayed as for the people that they're criminalizing and punishing. So Monica Jones, who's the person who discusses this in our book, was just walking along the street. She's a Black trans woman. She was walking not far from her home, and a man pulled his car over and started talking with her, and he offered her a ride to the bar where she was going because he, he said, oh, I'd like to have a drink with you. And they'd been chatting, and she said yes. And then she got in the car, and he propositioned her. He propositioned her for sex. And so she was like, oh, wow. you know. And she realized immediately that he was a cop. And so she said, can you let me out of the car? He said no. She wanted to get out, but she couldn't. And she was arrested. She was handcuffed and she was charged with what's called manifesting prostitution, which you can tell just from the wording, there's something wrong with that. And disproportionately trans people, particularly trans women of color, are arrested on these charges. And when she was charged, Monica Jones was not brought to the police station where you would expect to be taken if you're arrested. And instead, she was brought to a church. And she was part of this, this operation. Actually, she is an organizer, um, I think previously also an organizer against this type of thing. Um, but she was, she was part of a so-called rescue program called Project Rose that at the time purported to save sex workers. <laughs> and of course, the whole thing was under the threat of incarceration. So you're taken to a church, but the implication is if you don't participate, you may be incarcerated. And so this was, this was an effort that was not just a policing thing. It was done in collaboration with the social work school at the nearby university, Arizona State, and also Catholic Charities, which is a large organization that also does work in the so-called child welfare system, which we discuss elsewhere in our book, and other sorts of programs that are seen as separate from the police. And so this program, like a lot of programs like it, was seen as diversion, like, oh, you won't be going through criminal court, you won't be going to jail, Instead, you get to do this thing 
but that thing also is coercive. So Monica Jones was not the only person subject to this. There were many other people who were taken to this church and asked, will you accept your rescue? And all of the conditions that come with it, including classes, quote unquote classes. We know that in all of these alternatives, the classes are questionable. In the child welfare system, you have these parenting classes that are required that are teaching all kinds of suspect things that demonize certain types of parents. In when you're arrested um, or criminalized, uh, and you happen to be a survivor of domestic violence, you're often sentenced to classes that actually um, demonize survivors and say you should be uh, preventing yourself from becoming a victim. So all these types of things. So that's, that's also one of the things that's incorporated into rescue programs like Project Rose. And then, of course, a condition is not participating in sex work. Now, we have to recognize that sex work is not sex trafficking. It's not, it's often not people being forced to work in this way. It's people choosing sex work as a job that they either want to do or it's the option that they deem most appropriate for their life at that time. And Project Rose and other similar programs, they're, they're not doing things that make it possible for people to participate in these time-consuming conditions and classes and following all these requirements. They're not providing support. And that's, of course, a common theme that we see across alternatives. Instead of support, you're needing to meet all of these harsh requirements. So you're not getting childcare for the time that you're going to be participating in this program. You're not getting money, you're just needing to do it. And otherwise, you're looking at a jail sentence. And so this program isn't around any longer, but there are no, a number of programs like it that have been publicized as, you know, these kind of savior alternatives, but you know, when I say savior, that sounds negative, but you know, in, in general, they're portrayed as positive. And they're, they're kind of this extension of the surveillance and policing system that is, is seen as somehow different. Um, in our book, we mention how now New York State has a number of human trafficking intervention courts that focus on people who are arrested for sex work. And so they're, they're sentenced to these types of things that are supposed to be helping them, supporting them, but not actually given support. And meanwhile, diverted from actually doing work in which they were making money and doing the thing that, that they had chosen to do. And I think that this is something that, that we noticed a lot throughout a book, that self-determination is not seen as valuable as something that needs to be recognized as we're, we're looking at how to support people who might be going through things like addiction, things like mental health crises, 
it's not about self-determination. It's about the state deciding what help means. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly the case in terms of these sex worker rescue programs, but I think we need to also look at them more broadly, look at outpatient mental health programs that are court mandated, you know, in which people are required to attend certain therapies, sometimes required to go on certain medications, who are required to do all kinds of things that certainly violate even the most basic concept of self-determination, choosing what you do with your body and mind. But they're seen as these these very generous alternatives. And the same goes for drug treatment, whether it's in a lockdown inpatient treatment facility or whether it's in the quote-unquote community where you're subject to all kinds of conditions and restrictions on penalty of incarceration. So I think maybe a good place to end this, um, to wrap this up, is to sort of talk about the last section of the book where you're, you know, taking all this analysis that you made and you're making some prescriptions about what we can do um, to improve health and safety and and all of that. Um, and, you know, you go through building a real social welfare system. You talk about transformative justice. But I was really struck by the very first thing that you have in here, which is nothing. Uh, and I, I was really glad to see this in the book. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how you arrived at this point. Sure. We talked about, well, we, when we talked to every single person that we interviewed for this book, um, we asked the question, what could have been done instead? What would have helped? And in so many cases, the answer was, don't do this to me, nothing. Uh, so for for Monica Jones, she should have just been able to walk down the street as a black trans woman and go to the bar and have a drink and engage in conversation or whatever, you know, eat some peanuts, watch some TV, and not have been worried about being criminalized, not have worried about being targeted as a sex worker or rounded up as part of some social work slash police driven uh rescue program so for her nothing leave people alone they're not doing anything that's harming somebody else leave them alone uh the same thing that uh this is the same response we got from so many people people who are placed on electronic monitoring for acts that really did not harm anybody you know climbing in the the bathroom window of your best friend's house because you forgot your medication there and the door was locked. Uh, did not warrant an electronic monitoring sentence that precludes somebody from being able to participate in their family and community life and adds an unnecessary gigantic financial burden to that same family. So again, sometimes it's, you know, we don't need to treat every single instance with a criminalized response and that is what the state has is doing and continues to do so earlier you asked about co-optation and some of that is like oh well there's a co-optation of this idea that you shouldn't be putting people in physical brick and mortar jails and prisons for things like uh walking down the street while trans or possibly being a sex worker or you know 
climbing into your best friend's bathroom to retrieve your medication because you need it uh, at that very moment. And instead of saying like, well, let's just not criminalize trans women. Let us not uh, have these ridiculous diversion programs in which we go and we sweep people, actively sweep people up. Let us not, you know, let us say, okay, ma'am, next time can you like just call your friends and have her, you know, come home and unlock the door and not climb through windows anymore. You know, like the, the response is still a carceral response. We're going to put you under some sort of control and surveillance. So again and again, people said nothing. You know, like what would have helped in this situation? I didn't need help. All I needed to do was, you know, get to the bar, get to my school, you know, walk down the street, be able to sit on a bench without being harassed by police over and over and over, uh, be able to go play basketball and not have the cops, you know, decide that they were going to uh, police me because they thought that I was, you know, in a game because I'm playing basketball with some other people. So again and again, like we should say, we don't need a carceral response. We don't need criminalization to every aspect of people's lives. As a matter of fact, we need less criminalization, not more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that one of one of the things that we're pointing to is that if we're going to actually move beyond what we call the prison nation, which is a a term Beth Ritchie uses, then we need to stop thinking of a one-to-one response to every single offense that is listed inside the current criminalization system. And a a one-to-one alternative to every single punishment that is inflicted. So for example, the sex offender registry, when we talk to people who had been on the registry and every single advocate, they said, we just need to get rid of the registry entirely. There's not like a, oh, like there's a different kind of non-carceral registry that we need. We need to just abolish it. Now that doesn't mean that we don't do anything about sexual violence. It's recognizing that inside the carceral system right now, this is, this is not actually helping or supporting anyone. And in fact, it's harming people. Like we, we talk a lot in the book about the ways in which the sex offense registry harms people, both people who are convicted and charged with, with sex offenses and also survivors and victims. And, and so getting rid of it entirely, and no, we don't want a one-to-one alternative, but of course we do want a system that helps us move beyond patriarchy. We want all kinds of other ways to deal with harm and violence. We want to build a society where people universally are able to get non-coercive health care and non-coercive mental health care, including people who have survived violence. We want to build a system where there is adequate and well-resourced education for every single person. And, you know, so we don't want school policing. We want to dismantle the punitive aspects of the educational system. We don't want one-to-one alternatives there, but we want to build up this flourishing, abundant society. So I think when we say nothing, we're not saying, okay, there's there's no role whatsoever right. for 
support. <laughs> in fact, we're saying there needs to be much, much, much more, but it needs to be non-coercive. It needs to be completely apart from the criminal legal system. And we need to be challenging this concept of crime, which is what dictates the idea that there needs to be one-to-one -one alternatives for all these things. So like Vicky was saying, you know, this this crime of manifesting prostitution, like, you know, it's seen as something that needs an alternative because it's defined as a crime, but really it's harming no one. So I think we need to disconnect the idea of crime from actual harm. And we need to challenge criminalization at its root. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.